I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Welcome along to this week's edition of the Rocky Road Boxing Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Byrne, and I'm delighted <laughs> to say that we're joined by Russ Amber, who's just home from Saudi Arabia after being in the corner for Alexander Usyk's decisive 12-round victory over Anthony Joshua. Despite it being a split decision, I think most of the consensus was that uh, Usyk won the day. Russ, welcome to the show. How are you keeping? I'm well, Kevin. Thank you very much. Uh, happy to be here. Uh, I was a little surprised that this is what you wanted to do. So uh, sorry for the setting. I'm in my friend's restaurant right now. I haven't had anything to eat since I got home at 5 a.m. Uh, yesterday morning. So I needed to get something to eat. Yeah, sounds like a sounds like an odyssey of a trip back from Saudi. Where did you fly from? How did you get, make it back? Are you back in Canada at the minute? Yeah, I'm back in Montreal. So, I mean, it was everything started to turn into a disaster from, from uh, Istanbul. Uh, uh, the flight from Istanbul upon arrival, I should say, into Istanbul from Saudi. I was supposed to have a five-hour layover in Istanbul. That turned into a seven-and-a-half-hour layover, which turned into almost an eight-and-a-half, no, nine-hour layover because we got out very late. Supposed to be back in Toronto at 6.30 in the evening local time. Didn't get back till 9.30 and then had to catch uh, uh, a flight back to Montreal, which was supposed to leave at 11.15 and didn't leave until 1 a.m. Then my bags didn't arrive from uh, from Toronto to Montreal. So I stayed for an extra hour and a half at the airport, hoping they'd be on the next flight. They were not. End of story. I didn't get home till 5 a.m. without a bag. And now they <laughs> delivered one to me and there's still two missing. So yeah. <laughs> what's in the missing bags? Uh, <laughs> you know what? In my bucket, <laughs> my bucket, my laundry, you know, the bucket for the corner, my laundry. <laughs> A lot of my boxing stuff. That's what's uh, that's what's but safe safely returned is my is my snooker cue. So my bag with had my snooker cue in it is uh, is back. Happy days. It sounds yeah. like you've had a rougher couple of days than Anthony Joshua. Oh, I wouldn't say that. You know, and I, listen, uh, I, I I don't think that people quite understand the, the the magnitude of pressure that is on fighters, especially fighters like Anthony Joshua, who you know carry the weight of a nation on their shoulders and uh, you know, forget about the haters because haters will hate and there's nothing you can do about it. And some of them have, well, most of them have absolutely no class or understanding of what it means to put yourself out there on, on a stage and, and fight and carry the weights of, of, of 
millions and millions of people who love you and uh, you want to perform for them. Um, it's very difficult. It's difficult in the case of what Usyk had to do. Mm. And it's difficult in the case of what AJ has to do. But sadly, in sport, in boxing, you know, there can only be one winner, you know, and it's okay. The, the important thing in sport, and I think what you can get every athlete to agree to, nobody likes to lose and nobody will make a party out of losing. We agree. You know, everyone is a competitor. Everybody wants to win. The bad thing, the thing you never want to do in any sport is lose to a mug, you know, lose to a schmo, you know, lose to somebody who is not of your caliber. That's the worst, right? Because then you really have let yourself down and didn't perform the way you should have. But when two greats meet each other in any sporting contest, someone's going to lose. And as long as you give it what everything you have, you have to be proud of that accomplishment. You have to be mm. proud and appreciative of the fact that God has selected you to be in that position, you know, and put you in that spotlight. And you should be grateful to have been there. And I kind of uh, got that impression. Understand that. You kind of got that impression from Joshua though, when he said across the ring during that kind of, I guess you could call it a bit of an emotional meltdown, uh, having lost for the second time to Alexander Usyk. And he said, how did you beat me? How did you beat me? Can you bring us into the chaos Sure. In that yeah. ring in Jeddah. Listen, first of all, it's it's been b badly, badly hosted. And, you know, editing can be a bad thing, right? They, they can make things look very bad. He was being very respectful to uh, to Usyk. Now, Usyk has limited uh, English, obviously. You know, he has just a few words, but he makes himself understood very, very well. And he said to Anthony in a, in a, in a moment of pure respect, you're very strong. You're very strong. Now, this was to encompass all of Anthony Joshua, physically, mentally, you know, that how courageous of a man he is. I know what Usyk means when he says certain things. And of course, he also meant, you know, the physical strength as well. And that's when Usyk, that's when Joshua says, but strong doesn't matter. Look at you. You're not strong. How did you beat me? It's about skills, you know, and he was he was saying, you know, in his way was telling Usyk how you have outstanding skills, my friend. You're very good and you beat me despite the fact that I'm bigger than you and stronger than you, you succeeded in finding skills to beat me. And I thought that was utterly complimentary of the guy. You know, I have absolutely no issue. And I don't know why anybody would be hate hating on Anthony Joshua for making that kind of a statement. People just want to find things to hate on people for. People are so jealous of, of people's success and of what they do. And it's sickening sometimes to be involved in this sport. And the fact that social media, anybody has a platform to, to crap over on anybody else, to, to say whatever they want, be as disparaging as they want. And they're not, they're, 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 there's no consequences for that. And that's not right. When you say something, you have to be prepared to say it to their, to their face. And all those people would never be prepared to say that to AJ's face. And yeah. I think AJ has carried British boxing, has been the face of British boxing, He's a two-time heavyweight champion of the world. He avenged his loss to, to Andy Ruiz. He beat Klitschko. Uh, you know, like, how can he's, you... He's got your respect, it? Russ. He's got your respect. You know, yeah, sure he does. How, how did you get involved with Usyk in the, in the first place? Um, he, was in, he was on a show. Uh, they were looking for fights. He was, I think, in his nine, he had nine pro fights at the time. And um, they had a, there was a show that he was fighting on 
in the States. And because I work with, uh, with Loma, his manager, Egis Klimas, asked me if I wouldn't mind working with him as well as a cut man and hand wrapper uh, for the fight that was to be his U.S. debut. And I, of course, I said yes, and we became instant friends. And uh, he's one of the greatest humans I've ever met in my life, regardless of sport. He's one of the greatest humans I've ever met. I did a piece for a British uh, website called Boxing Social and did an interview with them, as I'm doing with you. And they asked me how I thought, uh, you know, what I thought about Alexander, as did as you have. And I said, the ultimate compliment that I can pay to him as a father of a girl, of a daughter, I said, Alexander Usyk is the kind of man you wish your daughter would bring home, right? Which I think is like kind of an ultimate compliment from a father and to say something about somebody else, right? I mean, how I do you so, find yeah. something bad in that? Do you agree, Go look at the post on Instagram and look at the comments that were left afterwards, you know, saying I was gay and that that was, you know, well, well let's see if he'll bring his daughter to AJ after he beats him. And, you know, like, the hate that came back from that after you're trying to say something nice about the guy, it's, it's sickening and it makes you not want to do these kind of interviews, makes you not want to do talk to people and be on social because all you do is open yourself up. No matter how good or how pure and clean you want to be, somebody finds a way to shit on it. And it's, it's bad. Yeah. So it's, not, it's not headed in a good direction. Well, I try and ignore those kind of comments, but I guess uh, you're, you're up there to be shot at when you're involved in such massive fights like the heavyweight championship of the world and, and people will always have opinions and, and use social media to just crap on you and crap on things that you say. But why, what is it about his personality that makes you think this would be a good son-in-law or that he's one of the greatest human he, beings sport aside? He is, that he's just a man of character, a man of conviction, a, a God-fearing man, and not just a pretend God-fearing man. Like he is a religious man. He has beliefs. He carries out those beliefs. He's, he's got an outstanding sense of humor. He cares about the people around him. Uh, he cares about what people think about him, especially in Ukraine. Uh, you know, he just has everything going for him that he, he lives by his word. He's a man of his word. Uh, he's endearing. He has a charisma about him. Like all these things I'm saying, he just, it just is. He just is. He, he, it just comes off of him of what a good man he is. It doesn't matter that he's a boxer. You could have a good vibe off him. You don't even talk boxing. You're just talking about family. He talks about his kids. He talks about experiences, about driving a car. It just comes off sincere and heartfelt. And that's the kind of man that he is. And he's mentally, I can't say that I have met anybody as mentally strong as him. Him and Loma are, have a level of, mental strength I have yet to see in other fighters before. I mean, and I didn't know Muhammad Ali personally, but that would be how kind of far back I'd have to go to that kind of conviction of a man. And you have to have conviction as a man. And if you remember correctly, or you might be too young to remember this, but during the whole time, you know, Ali's career, you know, and everything he did, the thing that stood out to me the most in his career wasn't his boxing. It's when he was a young, young man and he said he was prepared to, to face machine gun fire before denouncing Elijah Muhammad and the religion of Islam. He was in his early 20s when he said that. You know, that was his convictions as a man. 
that stood out to me more than anything he ever did in the ring. Yeah. And that conviction went his whole life. Does your kinship with Lomachenko and uh, Usyk kind of also come from the fact that they were such high-grade amateurs? And you, you come from amateur boxing stock yourself, I believe. You know, that's, that's probably the first love. Yeah. Olympic yeah, champions. I think I, you know what? Like, that, that's funny that you say that, that, Kevin, because for me, there was never a distinction between amateur and pro. I love boxing. You know, I love boxing. And of course, when you start, you've got to start as an amateur. So whether you're a trainer or a fighter, you know, you start off and you're building and you're learning your trade and you do it primarily in the, in the amateur ranks. I was lucky that the first, the first corner I ever worked, the first two corners I ever worked were a pro corner. But after that, that was just working the corner, but being in the gym and training fighters, you do that, of course, in the, in the amateur background and you have the, the history of, of going through the amateurs. And whenever I'm with my, dear friend Roy Jones, we talk a lot about our, because we came up in the amateurs at the same time, me as a coach, but him as a fighter. And we talk about our times in amateur boxing and the fighters that were around back then and who was good, who wasn't, who went on to be great fighters as pros. And myself, John, John Scully and Roy always talk about our history in amateur boxing. And you've got good links to, uh, to Irish boxing through your amateur connections as well. You were like the Canadian national coach. Um, did, did you come on trips to Ireland with your team? You were you were hardly involved when uh, when Gatti fought Wayne McCullough by any chance? No, I I wasn't. But I was um, in 1988. I started um, I started working for the CBC, which is the equivalent of your BBC, and uh, I started covering uh, the Olympic Games in Seoul. And I, and I was there for everything that went on in Seoul, including Roy's. The Roy Jones robbery in, in 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 Korea, and then we also back in those days covered the Commonwealth Games, which, if you remember, in 1986, Canada won six of 12 gold medals yeah. that were on on offer in in those days. There's no women's boxing, so 12 weight categories. Right? Canada won six in the, in the Commonwealth. Canada was the Cuba of the Commonwealth back in those days. You know, we had a great team. We finished with three medals, the three medals at the Olympics in in 88, you know, there's phenomenal numbers for a, for a country like Canada. Um, and I, Lewis, I, I, yeah. yeah, I was there when, when Wayne McCullough sang the national anthem in New Zealand after he won, they, after he won and they didn't have the, they didn't have Danny boy to play and he sang it in the ring. And when I see him in Vegas, we talk about that as well. So all these guys, I have a connection to the past with them because of those great times in amateur boxing that I doubt we'll ever see again. You know, but uh, it was great to be a part of that. It, that was like the golden age for me of, uh, of amateur boxing. So in, in Usyk's camp, what, what is it exactly is your role? I know you're wrapping hands, you're doing, you're doing cuts for him. Like, a, I guess, and you're the, you're the English speaking side of the team as well to the world. So you, you do a lot of his media. You speak kind of on behalf of the team as well. Am I correct there? Yeah. Um, I, when I speak, I try not to speak on behalf of them unless I'm asked to. I speak on behalf of me as part of team. Usyk. So everything is, this is about me, not about Usyk. This is about my impressions of me, not about Usyk. But I have a great relationship with the, with their team, you know, from, from Alex Kresiuk, his promoter, who I, I love dearly. Egis Klimas as well, who's given me an opportunity to work with these guys. His coaching staff, which we're limited on how close we can be because of our language barrier, but we communicate all the time. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I, I, I'm the cup man. And, and hand wrapper for Usyk. We make his equipment for him as well. And he wears our, our equipment when he trains and when he fights and whatever they would ask of me. So uh, the one thing that I've always felt, Kevin, whether it's with Usyk or anybody else is 
I bring something special to a corner in the sense that I'm not just a cut man because I'm a coach first. So when I'm watching a fight, even though my job is as a cut man, I see things as a trainer. I see things as a, as a coach and I can make those observations and talk to the people in the corner and offer my opinion. And it's well heated. And um, like I had that great relationship with, with Jamie Conlon as well. When Jamie and I would work in, in, in mixed corner, it was great having Jamie there because we saw the fights the same way as did his father who was on the side. And we agreed on, on seeing things and how, it, so that that's nice that I'm able to bring that extra element to the, to the corner. So like getting, getting to work with Lomachenko and Usyk, I'm sure it's a massive privilege for you. And um, we'll, we'll talk about Lomachenko in a minute, but when, when Usyk was beating all comers at cruiserweight and he started to talk about becoming a heavyweight, were there any members of the team saying you shouldn't do this? Or was everybody saying, Alexander, you've got the goods to go and win titles. Listen, at, at the end of the day, cruiserweight is, is a somewhat manufactured division as well. Now, I know it has its place, but right now, Alexander Usyk is the same size Muhammad Ali was when Ali might have even been past his prime. You know, like at, two, at, two, at 225, at 225, he's, uh, you know, he's, he's as big as Ali was and, you know, the way heavyweights used to be. So I didn't think it was a problem. And I, my hand to God... There's a friend of mine in, in Manchester, in the UK, who may, he, we both have a, a great craving for, for uh, Middle Eastern food. And we always go and eat when I'm in Manchester. And years ago, I told him that Usyk was going to be the heavyweight champion of the world. And every time discussion comes up, you know, about the fights, about AJ, he'll go on Twitter and say, Russ Amber told me this way back when, you know, that he was going to be heavyweight champion of the world. And. He, he did. He became heavyweight yeah. champion. He's done it. Um, we, we saw him uh, dethrone AJ at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium last year and uh, with a you know immaculate performance. Uh, uh, Anthony Joshua wasn't able to really get closer, make a dent in him, but he came closer this time in Jeddah. Uh, were you guys wary of the way the fight was going as Joshua started to warm up, throw to the body? What were the instructions in the corner as the, as the fight kind of got to the halfway point, let's say? What we got in this fight was what we expected in the, on, in the first fight. Yeah. We expected him to impose more. However, that said, Kevin, looking at what happened in this fight, despite what, what uh, AJ did, and I think it's fair to say that if it wasn't for the, the big ninth round that he had, we may not be looking at it with such glowing reviews. It made the first the first fight strategy, not as crazy as everybody made it out to be. And I think Rob McCracken, if he was the architect of this strategy, might have been onto something thinking, okay, we have to conserve our energy. We have to be careful. We take our time. We'll outbox him because he's expecting us to come at him. He's expecting us to do this. Maybe we'll just box it. And for all intent and purposes, after eight rounds, at least according to the judge's cards, he was still in the fight on the, in the first fight. And then... I think maybe because of too much movement, carrying that extra weight and Usyk making you fight at a pace that you don't always want to fight at. I'm sure you can ask many opponents about this. Um, he, he got tired in the last, the last four rounds of the fight, and then that's when Usyk kind of turned it on. But that wasn't much different from what happened in this fight. This fight, we saw a more stationary uh, AJ, more in trying to impose himself. So he wasn't putting combinations together like he did the first fight 
but he was throwing hard when he did throw and he wanted something to land and something landed in the ninth, you know, and it made, it made Usyk wary and he knew he lost the round. So instead of going at it and trading with him, he said, ah, I lost the round. Let me just weather this storm. And it turned out to be the right strategy because he weathered the storm. And I think it might've been the last bit of gas that AJ had in his tank because Usyk came on to take the last three rounds. Yeah. Uh, he shot, he shot as bold maybe in the ninth, but... Um, he may have, but he had to, right? He had to go yeah. for it, which is what he didn't do the first fight. He didn't go for it the first time. This time he went for it, but I'm still not convinced that it was an, a, a, as crazy a strategy as everybody made it out to be. And it cost, it might have cost Rob McCracken his job. And I think, in, in, in fact, having him fight that way allowed a rematch to occur. Had he not fought that way, we might not have had a second fight. Yeah, uh, I, I saw a quote from Usyk afterwards. He said he saw a victorious look in AJ's eye after the eighth round. You could probably see that AJ was getting a bit confident. And then Joshua went out and had that ninth round. Just just describe the emotions in the in the corner. Like Usyk went back to the to the corner and it looked like he was a bit rocked. He was shaking his head. He was kind of talking to himself, almost like trying to spur himself on. And he had to go out and you know walk into hellfire in that tenth round. But talk to me about the emotions in the corner at that stage. How do you G him up? Do you leave him alone? Do you just let him let him let him G himself up? Because he's a champion, you know. Just- I knew he was fine the way he walked back to the corner at the end of the ninth round. And I had the sponge ready and he saw my hand like this, ready to hit him with the ice water. And he stopped and closed his eyes because he knew the water was coming. Mm-hmm. And I hit him once and he opened his eyes again. And he closed his eyes again and I hit him again with it, you know, and sat down and squeezed it on him. And you could see the reaction from him. And when his coach started talking to him, I don't know what they were saying, but it was almost a, like, are you okay? And, and he was convincing the trainer, Yuri, that he was fine, that he was ready to do what he wanted to do and that he was okay. And so they told him, you have to go out and get back this round. These are the three rounds we talked about. And uh, that was the vibe that I got from it. You have to remember something, Kevin. I don't speak or I don't talk about emotions in the corner because that's not a time for me to be emotional or sentimental or lose my focus on the job at hand. So the job at hand is to recover my fighter and make sure he's ready to go out in the 10th round. And I hope we did that. And I think we did because he went out and had a fantastic last three rounds, including a great, a great 10th. And I think that kind of, you know, it, 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 it sealed any opportunity for Joshua to come back from that. You must have been a little so- somewhat happy to see him take those three rounds by the scruff of the neck, 10, 11, and 12, and probably walk away confident that he, he'd maintained his uh, status. You must have been somewhat buzzing to see him throw all those punches in that 10th round. Of course. Oh, absolutely. And then I knew we were back in it. Now I'm thinking, now, this is where now in the corner I'm thinking, are we going to get the stoppage now? Now I'm believing after the 10th, we're this close to getting a stoppage. In the last fight, we were at the tail end of the 12th round when he really hurt AJ and time was running out and I knew we weren't going to get it. But now he got to him in the 10th and I thought, oh, will we get, will we get the stoppage now? And so I got excited about that. But I, there was always that danger of I, the strategy that AJ was using was that he was going to swing back. Like he was just going to hail Mary anything he could, you know. And I was worried about that. But uh, uh of course, we were happy with the way he won the last three rounds. But then as soon as they announced the decision and we heard the first score from Glenn Feldman, who should be never, ever, ever, ever 
be allowed to judge a professional boxing match again with that horrific scorecard. And I, I knew just having been involved in boxing for this long, despite the fact that we thought he won, I'm nervous waiting for them to announce a decision. And Loma came in. I said, Loma, what do you think? He said, why? It, easy. He went big, you know? And I'm thinking to myself, okay, good. You know, but I'm worried still, right? And the first score that comes out is 115, 113, AJ. I wanted to throw my bucket at somebody. I'm saying, that this, you're not going to do this. Are you seriously going to rob this guy in Saudi Arabia? Because the one thing that bothered me in the whole fight was that every time AJ would throw something, if it was picked off, it was what the crowd was, ah, they go, they go crazy. I said, oh man, don't tell me it's going to be one of those. And sure enough, an incompetent judge like Glenn Feldman scores a fight 115-113 in which nobody saw the match score. Yeah, I was looking through some of Feldman's previous uh, just fights in, in recent history. He came out on the right side of a split decision in the Katie Taylor-Serrano fight, luckily for Irish boxing fans. Right. Uh, also in the Cambosis, first fight uh, in the Cambosis, uh, Teofimo Lopez, he was on the right side of the 2-1 split, but he was on the wrong side of the 2-1 split in Pacquiao Thurman. And uh, Ray Flores has said on commentary, he should never judge again. But, you know, is it just a case that you win some, you lose some, you can't be right every night? Or Kevin, if I was that bad at the job, if I was that bad on my, at my job in the corner, I'd never be hired again. So you want to take the chance of being a professional judge, then accept the responsibilities of being a professional judge and justify your score. So that he didn't want to, he was interviewed by Rob Tebbit on, on ID Boxing, and they asked him, he wouldn't answer, he says, talk to my supervisor. You're not supposed to. Uh, judges aren't supposed to speak to the media. Why? I, I don't know. It's like, wrong. yeah, it's it's wrong. A, it, they, there should be more transparency for sure, but they're not. They're of not course, supposed to. So they, they got to. Accountability. Yeah. You scored it that way. Why? Do you know he gave the first five of the six rounds to AJ and gave AJ the 12th? Like he was loving that stationary well, style. He was. I, I Joshua, did, Joshua did punch with a bit more menace. And maybe he felt every one punch that Joshua lands is more effective than the three punches Usyk lands. Is, is there a possibility you could have seen that? Did you feel the punches are, like from the corner? How hard? You've seen Joshua now for 24 rounds, been right up close. He's one of the big punchers in the division. Uh, the perception out there, and I probably believe it is, he could still knock out, you know, 90, 95% of the heavyweights out there. 100%. Um, you've seen him up there landing punches now on 16 stone Alexander Usyk. How hard does he punch? What was, what was Usyk's impression of the punches he took? Because oh, obviously he said at the end, you're a strong man, and he meant it yeah. more not just in punching power, but in a lot of ways. But you're Listen, right there close. You're ten, you're ten foot from the punches, maybe even a foot sometimes. Sure, uh, this ain't sparring. Definitely, he definitely threw with much more bad intentions in this fight than in the first fight. In the first fight, he tried to put more punches together than in this fight. This fight, he was loading up. He wanted to. There were times where even when he missed, he almost turned himself around as a result of the velocity he was throwing the punches with. And when, when we say he did hit Usyk, there's a difference between hitting a guy and hitting a guy. You know, where you land or snapping that head around. That makes all the difference in the world of how the power lands. So, you know, Usyk, Usyk is just so quick and elusive that he's not able to really get into that shot and hit him the same way that he hit Vlad, uh, the way he hit uh, Klitschko, you know, like where he hit him solid, you know, and, and the next stretched, and it was we didn't get that with uh, with with Usyk. So uh, he still is one of the hardest punchers in the division. But like like you said, you know, you said you're very strong. But what what a trainer will always tell a fighter is power doesn't mean anything if you're not landing. 
what was the um what was the atmosphere like in the in the camp uh, for Usyk? Obviously, it's somber time for Ukrainians. You know, they're probably you know they're still coming to terms with the loss at home. But at the same time, you've retained the heavyweight championship of the world. What was the mood like afterwards? Was there an after party? If there was, I didn't go to it. So uh, I unfortunately I didn't stay at the same hotel as them because of the fact that I was working with Callum Smith, who was on the undercard. I had to stay at the hotel where Callum was staying because we had to depart from that place earlier to the venue that Usyk would have been going. So if there was a party afterwards, I wasn't part of it. Not that I'm usually a party going guy. Uh, I'm happy about the win. I know the team was very happy. Um, but if you're leading up to about how he was, you know, going into the fight and training camp, um, I liken this to when Joe Lewis fought Max Schmeling the second time. And I mentioned this to Richie Woodhall and Steve Bunce when they interviewed me. And I was surprised nobody made that mention. But, you know, Joe Lewis carried the weight of the entire free world. Uh, Colin, Hart, Colin Hart did in the sun, I got to say. Yeah. He, oh, on, did he? On Saturday, okay. yeah, he mentioned uh, it. Yeah. Well, he must have he must have heard me talk about uh, it. Maybe. Yeah. Hart, he knows I'm his own <laughs> 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 uh, You know, th that's th that's something Joe Lewis carried the weight of the world on his shoulders when he fought Smelly. Despite the fact that we know Smelling wasn't a Nazi himself, you know, but the, the representation of yeah, that, he was, of the Aryan supremacy, he was a he was a pawn in that, and uh, in much the same way that Usyk carried the weight of the world on his shoulder, the same way that Muhammad Ali carried the weight of a of a whole generation of people on on the first time he fought Fraser. You know, can you imagine the pressure that both those fighters, including Fraser, who was probably never the same. After that first fight, you know, that was his pinnacle moment. That's what sports is. That's what those defining moments are and how you handle it afterwards. And I think AJ would be well served to realize just how great of a champion he, he is, what he has become and carry himself as such. And that he doesn't need to feel sorry for himself or be heartfelt or heartbroken for his performance any more than uh, Muhammad Ali was after he lost to Joe Frazier. What's Alexander Usyk's Joe Frazier 1971 moment? So is, has it already occurred or is it Tyson Fury? Is that fight going to happen next? What's like, it looks like it is. What's your, what's you your would, read on it? You would hope it will. Right. But you know, you're trying to negotiate with, with, with a pigeon. So, you know, like you, you don't know what Tyson's retired, not retired. Yes, I want to fight. I want to fight for free. No, I want a half a billion dollars. Like, I, I don't know. I'm so glad I'm not the one that has to be involved with that because I'm sure it is going to be a nightmare in putting it together. I'm sure that Tyson will do everything in his power to to lowball, disturb, upset, Usyk. I'm sure he'll do everything in that regard, you know, because he doesn't care. He doesn't care. Usyk cares about becoming unified heavyweight champion. You would think that Tyson cared as well. And if he did, the fight should be easy to make. But I, I'm worried that it's not going to be as easy as many people think. I think they'll make it, but there'll be a couple of frustrating cancellations. Just something to piss off Usyk a bit. We've seen that sort of stuff. Klitschko did it. And I think Klitschko taught the new generation. This is, you know, you exert control over your, over your opponents. You've seen a, a little bit of it from Joshua and Fury over the years. Not necessarily, not, not, not completely, but we've seen a bit of, you know, you need yeah, to yeah. have complete control over your opponents, frustrate them, you dictate the terms. So there could be a bit of that. Um, but it does look likely that they're going to fight again, uh, that they're going to fight for the first time. Um, even when, when Usyk went up to heavyweight, I said he's going he's to beat Joshua, he's going to win a world title. I was, I was sure of it. 
But I felt then, probably as a, as a lot of people do now, he'll, Tyson Fury is a whole trickier customer because he offers a completely different skill set to what Anthony Joshua can. And it's a hard night's work for Alexander Usyk. He's obviously very confident he can win the fight. He called for Fury straight after. He said he doesn't want any other fight other than Tyson Fury. What's your take on that fight if it gets made? I think it's, uh, you're right. Uh, I think Tyson Fury is a problem at his best. Tyson Fury would have been a problem for any heavyweight in history. Uh, you know, uh, Larry Holmes, uh, George Foreman, anybody. It would have been a tough night because on his night, when he does what he wants to do, he, he really surprises me as a fighter in the size that he carries and how nimble and flexible and agile that he is. It really is a surprising sight to see. So, yeah, it will be it will be a tough fight. But um, Usyk, for some you know strange reason, has the ability of solving solving puzzles. And uh, let's just say that you know Tyson Fury is going to be another puzzle. And let's see if uh, if if Usyk can solve them. Uh, I like I like Usyk's chances. I like what he brings to the table. And uh, I've said it before this fight that he will beat Tyson Fury, and we'll see if I'll be right or not. Yeah, could be wrong. Gonna, it's happened before. Yeah. He's got to take a bit of solace from maybe watching Steve Cunningham all those years ago dropping uh, Tyson Fury himself, a former cruiserweight champion, of course. Mm. But Fury looks like to be a different animal at the minute under uh, under his new coach Sugar Hill Stewart. So he's he's punching hard. He's dominating fighters, and he looks he's looking pretty good. Uh, so I think it's a fight to look forward to. All right, um, and we will see it made one day. Uh, just just a quick word on uh, on Lomachenko. Do you have you got any idea if he's fighting again soon? Like there's so many great challenges out there for him. I, I love the, I think the Shakur Stevenson is probably the, one of the greatest fights he can make in boxing, but there's a lot of opportunities out there from if you can get back in the ring sometime soon. Of course there is. I'm, I'm hearing, I'm hearing October is a possible date for his next fight. So we're preparing for that. Um, to be honest with you, Kevin, I'm, 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 I'm just bitter and disgusted with the state of boxing as it is today. When you look at the talent that's in, the lightweight division and other divisions as well, of course, but in the lightweight division, the talent that's there and nobody fights each other. They just all like to fight on social media. They like to use profanity. Everybody's you're a bitch. You're this, you're that, you know, they just, they just no respect for each other. They hate each other. Everyone says they can beat each other, but they never fight. They don't fight each other. They yeah. all look for the go on their own separate little road and, and be champion of their own little circle of friends and that's all they're interested in, you know? And you have a guy like Lomachenko who never, ever, ever gets mentioned by anybody outside of the top-ranked promotion group, never gets mentioned by anybody when discussing Tank Davis, Ryan Garcia, or any of the other top lightweights in the world today. He's the, he, they don't even want it. They, 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 they use the method of let's ignore it as much as we can, and maybe he'll go away attitude. They won't even recognize that he exists. He'll become 40 me- years old is what they want. Yeah, exactly. That's what they want. They want to Golovkin him, you know, into, into yeah, disappearing. Exactly. exactly. Um, you've worked extensively with Mick Conlon over the years. You, you were in the corner there for the uh, for the 12th round, 12th round defeat. Dramatic fight of the year caliber uh, match with Lee Wood. Uh, that, was, that was a hell of a night. That was one of the low points of my life, to tell you the truth. Like that was, there are some fights that stay with you and, you know, I'm glad to say touch wood. I haven't had many, but that was that was one of them that was just heartbreaking and will stay with me the, the rest of my life. You know, like it was uh, uh, you never think you're going to be in that dramatic 
last second loss, you know, in, in the last round that you'll be part of that. And um, yeah, just, just a shot that got away and caught him and Lee Wood showed a lot of resilience to come back in the fight and showed just how great shape he was after falling behind uh, early in the fight. And then, stuck with it and kept trying to come back, kept trying to come back. And of course the ridiculous call made by, I think it was the referee was Steve Gray, that ridiculous slip, you know, that he called a knockdown in the 11th round, which was just another horrific display of refereeing when everybody everywhere could see that that was a slip. There was no punch that landed. You could say, Oh, the guy threw a punch at the same time, but you have to be smart enough to understand did the punch cause the knockdown? No, it didn't. So stop with, Oh, we got touched at the same time. That's just, but crap, you could have just crossed your hands, waved it off, and nobody would have said anything. Nobody would have said, how could you not have called that an octa? Nobody. And you screwed that up for, for everybody with a shit call. So, and that that has me more mad than anything else, you know, that that, that was made because that, 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 that round became a three-point swing. That went from being a 10-9 round for Conlon to a 10-8 round for Lee Woods, and that's not fair. That was a... Do you think it possibly contributed to the way he boxed in the twelfth round, which resulted in you know him becoming exhausted and knocked out? I, I'm I'm not sure I can agree with that because we had been telling him from halfway through the fight, stay off the ropes, stay off the ropes, stay off the ropes. You know, so I don't think he did anything in particular in the round that contributed to that. He went to the ropes and you know uh, he he bent one way. And he just happened to bend right into the shot, kept bending to his own left, and he bent into the shot straight where Lee Woods had been trying to land all night but couldn't. But this time he threw it a little bit lower, and he kind of bent into the shot and caught it on the wrong side of the head and and put him through the ropes. Uh, You know, I I don't think so. I think he was going out there and winning the round the way he was winning the 10th and the 11th. And, you know, I think he was doing, continuing to do what he wanted. I don't think he did anything drastically different in the 12th than he had been doing earlier. So uh, I think he just went out and did what he was doing and, and and got caught on the ropes after not having got caught to being on the ropes and, you know, avoiding all those shots, avoiding them, avoiding them. And then eventually one Hail Mary is going to get through and it did. Were you over for the Fela in Belfast this year? I know you were there last year for the, the scrap with TJ Doheny. I think I read your account of it. And he just yeah. said it was uh, the greatest atmosphere you'd ever experienced. It, it was It was something special, all right? It was. Uh, that was a highlight moment for me as well. And I love being in Belfast. It's one of my favorite trips of, on, the, on the boxing circuit is anytime there's a fight in Belfast. I just love being there and the friends that I've made there. Uh, I was gutted that I couldn't be there this time. Uh, so they decided to go with another cup man for this fight. And so I wasn't there. And uh, yeah, that's that hurt because I really enjoyed being with, with, with Jamie and, and the gang and uh, the family and I liked working mixed corner and I've been working with them for a while now, done a lot of fights and I felt an important part of the crew and it was, it was, it was sad not to be there. Yeah. Who are your people in Belfast? Give them a shout out. Well, I got the, 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 my favorite people there are the people at, uh, the Blackstaff snooker club. Uh, Seamus has the Blackstaff snooker club and that's where I hang out and, and play all the guys up there and have a good time. And, and of course, my friends in, uh, you know, Mikey Hawkins and Michael Jr., who I get to see from uh, the Belfast Club uh, Boxing Club. And that's the Holy, Holy, Holy Trinity, I believe is the name. Uh, yeah, the absolutely. Gym. 50 years old this year. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Club. And I've known I've known I've known Mickey Hawkins 
since my days, you know, talking about the amateurs, since my days in the amateurs and now got a chance to meet his son, which I had never met before. We played snooker together the last time I was there. We have a rivalry going. So, uh, yeah. Is he a bit of a shark? Mickey Jr. Who, who's winning those matches? He can play. He can play. Yeah. He can play. Yeah. Yeah. He can play. I have to be on my A game. Who's the best, um, who's the best snooker or pool playing boxer you've met? There's a few sharks out there as well. I heard Pacquiao's really good, isn't he? Yeah, I was going to say Pacquiao, but I've never played him. But I hear he's very good. So of the people I've played, the best, the best from the from the boxing world that I've played in maybe not in this particular order would be Liam Smith, Roy Jones, and uh, Michael Jr. Those right. are the three best that I've played from the. the you got to get you, you got to get a game organized against uh, Spike O'Sullivan from uh, Cork here. I think he beat Steve Davis, former you know, multiple-time world champion. I think he beat him what? in a slight exhibition in Cork. Yeah, no, I, I wasn't. I wasn't there. I'm not too familiar with the story. Wow. Myself and Spike once did a joint interview with Ronnie O'Sullivan, like the great Ronnie O'Sullivan. He's a big Spike fan. But yeah, Spike went on then to play Steve Davis, and I don't, was it a full frame? Must have been. I don't know how it happened. Really, but. I would play any of those guys. I just yeah. love the game, and uh, I played. I played snooker in Saudi Arabia, and uh, I went to the same club that I had went. That I that I played at when we went over in 2019 when Callum Smith beat George Groves for the for the Ali Trophy and when I walked into the place all of a sudden hey Rod, they all remembered me you know and so I spent the whole week there playing uh, playing snooker in there as well so that was great great stuff what's next for you Russ what corner are you gonna are you gonna find yourself in next time bro I just got back I have no <laughs> idea even what day it is today so. Uh, let me let me call my office and see what's going on. Let me catch up on my stuff. I hope I find my luggage. I'm keep waiting for my the, the the airline to call me and tell me they found my luggage, and then I'll find out what I'm going to be doing next. But uh, uh, yeah, I'll have to let you know about that. Kevin. Well, I believe your uh, luggage is going to arrive right on cue. I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> right on cue. <laughs> Come on, Russell. Look, thank you so much for joining us today on the Rocky Road. Appreciate your thoughts on uh, the weekend that was in Jeddah. Alexander Yusik's greatness. What's next for Vasil Lomachenko? Working with Michael Conlon and your friends in Belfast. So much more. It's been great. And uh, thank you again. Thank you very much. And tell all them guys at Blackstaff that I, that I missed them and I, I want to be back playing in the club. Yeah. We'll get them to listen in and uh, send their reactions. Thank you again, Russ. Thanks, brother. Appreciate the time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.